Welcome to AI in Academia, Navigating the Future. This podcast will feature a range of guests who share their insights on AI around impact, risks, and opportunities in academia. Our goal is to prepare our higher ed audience to embrace responsible uses of AI in teaching, learning, academic research, and administration. I'm your co-host, Noah Chantzer-Kisa, Professor of Mathematics and Data Science at Bentley University. And I'm your other co-host, Gaurav Shah. I'm the Director for Academic Technologies at Bentley University. And our guest for today is Professor Axel Seaman, who is a professor here at Bentley University, works in the philosophy of mind, and is particularly interested in the mind-social dimension, on which he has written numerous articles and a monograph. More recently, he has become interested in loneliness as a prominent social phenomenon of our time, and even has his own podcast on loneliness. Welcome, Axel. I don't think I get it full justice on your introduction, so please add anything else that I've missed uh, and give our listeners a take on who you are and what you do at Bentley. Yeah, okay. So hello, both of you. Uh, Thanks for the invite. Fascinating topic. You caught a lot of uh, what I do for work. I am mostly interested in the nature of the mind and in particular the nature of the social mind, you know, how minds and the bodies that are attached to them connect to each other. How do we manage through interaction to create a shared world? That's, you know, what, what drives my research and also some of my teaching, though I don't only teach in the philosophy of mind, I teach also in social philosophy, metaphysics and epistemology in general, occasionally even some ethics, so broad church for our students. I am also a head of department and as such have a keen interest that our philosophy and the arts and sciences be appropriately represented and put to good use in the context of our quite particular university that, you know, describes itself as a business university. So a university that aims for research and aims for teaching on a sophisticated level, but somehow from a business lens. And one thing that has recently, you know, been of interest to me in that context is the fascinating and challenging development of artificial intelligence and how we might present the topic to our students. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue to where we wanted to start out this interview, which is AI. And specifically, you mentioned your head of department, and it is a slightly unusual university where we have this business theme and framing through all of our curriculum, really. So right now, I would say one of the biggest things in business is artificial intelligence. So it just seems kind of obvious that we have to recognize it and help prepare students for this. And we're excited to find out that Bentley is launching a new AI major. And one thing that's especially interesting and and especially why we wanted to get you on the podcast is it's not a traditional AI major, if there even is such a thing, but it's, it's interdisciplinary. So it's joint between computer information systems, which is our sort of flavor on computer science department and your philosophy department. So I'd love to hear just kind of the big picture. So we we do have a Bentley audience, but also a non, you know, external to Bentley audience. So could you share with us, even, you know, I'm at Bentley and I don't know how the sausage is made. What's it like creating an interdisciplinary major where you have to coordinate with a very different department, not just across arts and sciences, but across STEM boundaries? What's involved? How do you begin that process? And, you know, what what was it like? Yeah, (laughs) So that's a mighty fine question, as you, as you might say. It's very hard to know how to begin. I mean, you know, we began, I can, you know, only talk about our concrete case. And we began because Monica Garfield, you know, our colleague, head of uh, the computer science department, and I had a little chat at, you know, I, I think it was a pub night about artificial intelligence and what we might do with this at Bentley. 
And then, you know, we just stumbled across the idea. Look, you know, we, we might develop a major and minor that doesn't just teach our students how to program, but rather teaches them how to become proficient about artificial intelligence in a business and also societal context. And that's, you know, how we started. And it was just a conversation and the conversation developed. And then we had a look at, you know, what was already on offer at Bentley. And we found that a lot of stuff was already there that we could build on. And so then, you know, we branched out and talked to other people, talked to all the chairs, talked to, you know, the powers that be. And uh, everywhere we went, we found green lights. And so that's, you know, that's how it broadly began. I won't bore you with, you know, the technicalities of the many committees that have to be satisfied till finally, you know, we got this to the finishing uh, stage. But so even though Monica and I were the drivers behind this, I want to say that this is really not just a collaborative effort between our two departments. I think we've got nine departments involved in total. So we've got various business departments, you know, we've got mathematics prominently, we've got sociology, we've got, you know, GLS, we've got all sorts of, you know, all sorts of departments. Uh, and so, you know, many, many people uh, contributed to the development of this major. So one thing that we comes up into discussions about creating new majors is, is the lifespan of these things, you know, how trendy and timely. So uh, I know we have a fintech major, and I think there's caution there to not call it cryptocurrency. Because what if, you know, through the three years it takes to create a cryptocurrency major, you know, the, the fad fizzles out and people lose interest. So fintech is really more broad. You know, it's technolo financial technology. So it sounds like you're confident that AI is, is going to last and it's, you know, a worthy of college education and it deserves a major with the name AI in it that'll be here for many years. Is that accurate assessment? So yes, that's 100% accurate. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gone uh, to, the, to the trouble. So a few remarks. First of all, on uh, the question of, you know, whether AI is a fad. Recently, Monica and I, you know, went to um, an event uh, for prospective students where, you know, we presented all these new programs and um, exactly the same question um, came up. So it's really important to see that, first of all, even though the topic of artificial intelligence has only been recently at the forefront of everybody's mind and of public discourse, intellectually, this has been with us for a long, long time. You could think that Descartes, under different terminology, thought about the possibility of an artificial mind, say, you know, 300 odd years ago. Certainly, you know, since the 1950s with, you know, the, the, the beginning of uh, computer science and the cognitive sciences with, you know, Alan Turing, the Turing machine, the Turing test, well, the Chinese room. Yes. I have to pause and, and reveal my ignorance here or how, low, how little I know about philosophy. So when I think of Descartes, I think of the expression, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. So this is, again, me as a non-expert, but hopefully a lot of our audience has, has similar questions. Do you think current manifestations of AI, like ChatGPT, do they think, are they, do they satisfy Descartes' expression there? You put um, Descartes, so I couldn't resist asking. So, I mean, how long an answer do you want? Okay, when we think about these things, you know, we need to be quite careful about what we mean by thinking and um, what we mean by intelligence and what we mean by consciousness. What Descartes had in mind was a kind of consciousness that is very sophisticated in that, you know, it is reflective. So, you know, the creature or the person or the ego that has that sort of consciousness also knows that it has it necessarily. And it's a condition of that kind of consciousness. 
and then it can, you know, it can think and it can think about itself. It's got self-awareness. But consciousness needn't be like that. You can think of forms of awareness, forms of sentience that are, you know, much simpler than that, that haven't got this reflective structure built into them. And while I would be hesitant to say that ChatGPT, you know, exhibits consciousness in the reflective intellectual Cartesian sense, we can at least, you know, meaningfully ask the question whether forms of awareness or forms of intelligence that are not as sophisticated as Descartes would have it can be found in some forms of artificial intelligence as it is present to us today, whether it's ChatGPT or something else. Can they be trained to do that over a period of time? Can you be trained to have consciousness? Again, I, I struggle to, to find, you know, sort of a, a, a brief answer to that. I think it makes sense to, to think that the best thing we can observe is that consciousness and thinking coincides with particularly functionally organized events in the brain that, you know, we may be able to observe or at, yeah. any, way, at any rate infer from what's observable. So then, you know, if you can teach a system to execute that function, right, exactly what the Turing machine does, right, then to the extent that you can teach the system to do that, you can teach it at least perhaps a minimal form of intelligence. Yeah. yeah. But this is really, really, really rough. We could have an entire seminar yeah. about that or two. Well, I think that's a great preview because I'm, I'm glad we went in this direction, even though I think Gaurav and I weren't planning it, but it was a fun little impromptu. Because going back to this discussion of this new major, I have to admit, when I first was learning about this and I heard philosophy departments involved, instantly the buzzword that came to mind is ethics. I thought, oh, of course, there's so much discussion of algorithmic bias and ethics and AI, and it certainly makes sense to have philosophy involved. But I think what you're bringing up, and I'm glad it came up in this podcast, is there's a lot more to the interactions of philosophy and AI than just ethics. And that's not to downplay the role and importance of ethics. But that's to say there's this deep history of theories of mind and consciousness and sentience. And I think what you're really highlighting is that's been really an important discussion for hundreds of years, probably even thousands. And yet somehow AI is kind of, it's making these questions, it's not really answering them, but it's making them so salient and relevant that we can all feel them in our living rooms. You know, we can now type into our phones and our computers and kind of palpably experience these really profound philosophical questions that many thinkers have been grappling with, but a lot of people have been kind of avoiding or not aware of. So how do you think about philosophy in this major on that spectrum between sort of theory of mind and the history and, and you know, real classical philosophy that you're describing versus very timely ethics, things like bias and algorithms, whether military should use automated weapons with AI, so I see there's a lot of philosophy. Do you see all of that in the major, some of it, a blend? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the, the question arises, first of all, what do we want with this major, right? And we want, I think, two things. And AI is a great way, a great topic to achieve both of these things. We want to enable our students to think for themselves. So we want them to, you know, learn something that's challenging and interesting and sword-provoking and sets them on an intellectual journey. But we also want our students to thereby prepare for them for a professional career. And so then, you know, the question is, how do you best achieve um, those two aims together? And as far as our philosophy goes, we will require all of our students to take an AI ethics class, which, you know, touches upon 
all the questions that you've just mentioned and several others. And so that's what everybody who is a Bentley graduate in artificial intelligence will have to have. They will have to be proficient about the ethical dimension of this um, domain and they will have to be able to, you know, think about it critically and constructively. Do you think that ethical dimension is what employers are looking for is kind of the business marketable skill? Yes. So we have, in developing this major, you know, we have talked to a great number of stakeholders, including uh, many people who work in AI, many of them graduates um, from the CIS department. And one thing that we heard over and over and over again is we want people who can think about the ethical dimension of the new challenges and opportunities that AI affords. So yes, this is absolutely something that, going by everything we've heard, um, employers want. And uh, so, you know, we are equipping our students to acquire this um, ethical knowledge, this ethical proficiency. But then, you know, we offer as options so much more. So our students can then, you know, the, the, the major comprises eight mandatory courses in four fields, in maths and computer science and business and arts and sciences, of which philosophy is one. And the mandatory ninth one in either maths or CIS to require to satisfy the STEM requirement. So that the whole thing is a STEM major. So that there'll be some required courses, but also there will be optional courses amongst them. One on the computational mind in which, you know, we deal with all these wonderful questions that we've just talked about. So the possibility of an artificial mind, the possibility of artificial sentience, intelligence and all of that. So that, that seems like a perfect marriage of what we really strive for at Bentley, but I think it's important broadly of really thinking about the arts and sciences meeting with the business needs. And the way I'm understanding what you're saying is that the theory of mind, these questions of consciousness and sentience fall more in the kind of classical arts and sciences. The AI ethics maybe is a bit more on the business side, although there's certainly overlap and you're, you're kind of bridging this gap. I think that's a, for me at least, a helpful way to think about this. Yeah, no, I think that's, a, that's the correct way to think about it. Yeah, we want to do something that's useful, professionally useful, applicable, but then also give our students the opportunity to branch out and really think freely and explore. And thereby, to go back to your earlier point, you know, you talked about, we began with the question of whether AI was a fad. Uh, so, you know, so I, I said it, it's, it's, it's been with us for centuries. I don't think it's a fad, but, you know, it's rapidly changing, as we know, you know, from looking at from where we were with, say, ChatGPT a year ago and where we're now, there's no comparison. It's breathtaking. And so when you, you know, educate students to have a career in this field, you can't just teach them, you know, a set of tools because these tools will be outdated tomorrow. So you have to teach them to think creatively and critically so that they, you know, learn to adapt themselves so that they acquire the capacity to be lifelong learners. And in that, this intellectual arts and science aspect plays a crucial role, of course, because that's exactly what we do. You know, we're teaching our students how to learn throughout their professional and intellectual career. I think that's a great point. And I think there are going to be a lot of people that graduate from various programs. I don't, you know, they might be AI boot camps and things of varying quality where I, I worry there's going to be a lot of tooling, and I'm not saying this a progress to Bentley, I mean broadly, like the whole ecosystem of higher ed. I worry there's going to be a lot of people who pay for some credentials and tooling and graduate and within a year or two have to come back and pay to retool. So I think it is important as others are planning on building these programs and designing new majors and credentials and boot camps that we really do be mindful that, as you're saying, Axel, that we're, we're preparing students 
with the current needs, the current tools, but also this thirst for knowledge, these deep questions, these things that will keep the student learning throughout their career. And I think for me, at least, I'm much more motivated to jump in and learn these tools if I have kind of a deeper drive and thirst for knowledge. You know, if I really want to understand the mind, it's a lot more fun to pick up some Python and, you know, do whatever I need to, to kind of explore it and probe it. But if I'm just feel like, oh, I have to do this to get a job, it, it can feel kind of burdensome. So I, I personally find that the sort of traditional, classical College of Arts and Sciences approach to learning, it really helps motivate me, right? It's, it's that thing that you're looking not just three years out, but 20 or 50 or 100 years out of, of trying to understand the world. So I'm, I'm glad that this is really central to the new major here. And yes. And of course, you know, whenever I teach a philosophy course, at least one of my students is going to say or write afterwards, what I really hated about this was that there were never any answers. There are always more questions. And every time a student asks that, or says that, you know, I give myself a little pat on the back because that's exactly right. The attitude that we have to have is that our answers are always provisional and they change constantly in the light of new evidence, new developments. And so we have to keep adapting and we have to love to adapt. And a good way to love to adapt is to explore further the great questions that, you know, sort of guide us along. That's right. That's a good picture. Yeah. And I think we are in a unique uh, situation, Bentley being business and arts and sciences, that we can bring both together and make it as a major. But, you know, you talked about when you were thinking of this major, we already had a lot of content and courses to build upon for this major. But thinking forward, you know, as the field's changing too, are there things that you see we don't have or, you know, that you would recommend other higher ed institutions need to have in place for having a successful major like this? Or does Bentley lack anything that we need to go and, and get more of? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Yes. What we need urgently, not just in the context of this major, but it comes out particularly, you know, in, in the context of an interdisciplinary major such as this one is we need to have um, the infrastructure that allows us to do true interdisciplinary work in the classroom. So, you know, we need to have a structure that allows us to co-teach with our colleagues, you know, in different departments and in particular, though not just across the ANS business divide, if you want. Oh, bad word, but, you know, you see what I mean. So th that is really essential because, you know, if our students just take a course with me on the computational mind and then they take the ethics course and then they take a bit of programming and then, you know, they take the odd business course on artificial intelligence in a particular business field, it's, it's not going to be maximally useful. You know, we, we have to sort of help create a synergy in the mind of the learner and also in our own minds. And for that, we have to be able to collaborate, you know, in the, in the classroom. And so, you know, this is not just us and it's not just AI, but as these kinds of fields develop, I think institutions need a framework that allows their faculty to do that. I think that's absolutely crucial. I think let, let's pause on that and, and really unpack that a bit more, because I think it's a really key point that I, I hadn't anticipated or thought ahead of time for this conversation, but I think our listeners will be interested. So I would say AI is one of the most exciting, interesting, genuinely interdisciplinary topics in recent years. There's so much interest, you know, nationally, internationally, and it really does not fit into one disciplinary box. And there's always been interest in academia of being more interdisciplinary, but I feel like sometimes it's a little bit stretched or, you know, it's a cool buzzword a new administrator wants to bring in. But here it's unavoidable, right? AI is not just computer programming. 
And it's not just, you know, any of these other ingredients. We're seeing a lot of things like discussions of copyright. So I think legal aspects are key to this. Engineering aspects, theoretical computer science aspects, mathematics, statistics, artistic questions, philosophical. You know, it's, it's just so deeply interdisciplinary in a way that goes far beyond the superficial. So now, as you're saying, Axel, okay, so we want to do better than academia traditionally has for addressing interdisciplinary. We have to go beyond the buzzword. And I think you've really highlighted a key to this, which is co-teaching. So just to elaborate on that, that's, for instance, having a single course, not a major, but a single course that has two faculty members from different departments. So I know at Bentley, I'm sure other institutions have tried, and I know at Bentley we have almost sort of periodically tried this experimentally, and it's been difficult. Not to say that it's failed, but can you, if you have experience or knowledge of this, and, and either of you, maybe Gaurav has seen some of this on the more technical side, what are some of the challenges? What makes co-teaching so hard? Yeah. So the best example I've got, so first of all, interdisciplinarity, quite generally, anywhere, not just in teaching, but also in research. If, if it's proper interdisciplinarity is bloody hard. It's hard because research is complicated anyway, right? It's sophisticated. You it takes you a long time to acquire the vocabulary and the concepts you need, you know, to do good research in your field. And now you are asked to look at the topic that you're interested in, in part from a perspective that isn't your own, where the words are different, where the concepts are different, where it's not always clear you're totally talking about the same thing and there isn't a common language. So you have to work out that common language, you know, as you go along. And so this is super challenging, even outside of teaching, like any interdisciplinary work, you know, is, is really hard. The best personal example I have is, so I, I taught for a long time a, a course in our PhD program that was called Philosophy of the Social Sciences, where we looked at, you know, the philosophy of social science because business science is a social science. And then all the students had to write a semester long project in which they brought together a topic that they were interested in or researching with philosophical concepts. So they had to ask a philosophical question about their work. And so they had to, I asked them to do true interdisciplinarity. And I, because I had to, you know, do it with them, had to be interdisciplinary as well. I had to acquaint myself with, you know, these various business perspectives to some extent. And it was really difficult. It was, when it flew, it was amazing. There was a lot of failure. And I think, so the first thing, you know, the first thing that um, we have to bear in mind is that there has to be room for failure and what we are presenting, what we are elaborating should not be couched as easy, simple outcomes, but as explorations. I think, you know, that's, that's crucially important. Something that's really hard for the students as well, because, you know, sort of many of our students like concrete answers. Here it is, you know, and I can compute it. And if I get this result, then I get an A for it. And uh, interdisciplinarity isn't like that because there is no common vocabulary. You are working that out. It's like learning a new language together. And uh, so, yeah, this is a little bit of background that I have. So the only thing I can really say is this is going to be messy, right? And we have to embrace the mess. You have to build a structure out of the unstructured part of the interdisciplinary. Yes, that's right. So I want to shift our focus a little bit uh, over here, Axel, you know, you being the department head for philosophy department here at Bentley, when generative AI specifically became more mainstream, you know, a couple of years ago now, we are in 2024. And what came to your mind? What were your thoughts as you were looking at this technology, you know, being out there in the hands of students specifically? 
you know, how was your department's approach to, to this, your approach to this? And then tell us a little bit more about from student perspective and then also from faculty perspective, what is your reaction? To the development of artificial intelligence. Let's so, consider of AI more specifically. I see. Okay. Well, you know, I think that obviously as a head of department, you know, it is my job to be concerned that our students learn and keep learning in the way in which they need to learn, where, you know, learning involves thinking and writing and doing the thinking and the writing yourself. And obviously, you know, uh, ChatGPT in particular, you know, poses massive challenges for that. Like one of my colleagues recently said, you know, if we're not so we asked our students informally, students we knew, what percentage of our written assignments at Bentley at the moment, this was towards the end of last semester, do you reckon are written either fully or with the help of chat GPT? And the answers varied between 30 and 90%. And so my colleague, in the light of, you know, this informal bit of evidence, my colleague said, you know, if we're not super careful here, we are risking of making education worthless. Like, you know, sort of if we lose track of our students' actual learning, we're not teaching them anything. And then what we're doing is, is, is worthless, right? And so this is, you know, this is, this is a big concern. And uh, yeah, you know, I think perhaps that's, that's the biggest one. Of course, you know, of course, but then, but then, you know, putting it in this way, you know, makes it sound so negative. Of course, there are amazing opportunities here. Like, you know, sort of I think AI if done right, offers enormous potential for the making of a better world. If done right, it can also go horribly wrong. But if it's done right, you know, then the opportunities are near endless. But that's a broader observation as far as, you know, academic uh, departmental work goes. The pressing issue right now is this one, I think. So what about, I think Gaurav's question is kind of segueing to another one we we're hoping to bring up, and I think we have time, which is, as Gaurav mentioned, you have this podcast on loneliness. You write and think a lot about loneliness. And even if you haven't had a chance to try out many of these apps and chatbots specifically, I think there's just kind of a general feeling that this could go in either direction, right? Suddenly everyone could have a best friend that's available around the clock. This could help with depression and social anxiety and isolation, or it could make things a lot worse, right? Suddenly all the addiction we have with social media, the isolation, the not forming human relationships could get exacerbated greatly because now we just have these big giant matrices that do silly little mathematical multiplications and that we pretend is some semi-sentient life form that we're talking to. So do you have a sense, and this you know doesn't have to be deep quantified research, but just like your intuition, do you have a sense, are we going to come out of this, this chatbot era more lonely, less lonely? How is it going to impact our psychology? Feel free to just speculate. We'll, you know, we'll take it with a grain yeah. of salt. So again, you know, how, how much time have you got? Okay, so you know, let's let's begin where we where we left it off. It you know, students are when you do research on who gets who gets lonely, right? The the two groups, demographic groups that most report feeling lonely are the elderly, which is you know to be expected, and then the second biggest one is often uh, college students, right? So you know, young people, our students, despite being incredibly sort of socially connected, very often feel feel lonely, feel alone, and you know, this goes to highlight the fact that when thinking about this topic, we need to distinguish very carefully between objectively measurable social isolation and connection and the experience of loneliness, right? You can, you know, you can sit in a field all by yourself and not feel lonely and you can be surrounded by many other people at a party mm -hmm. and feel desperately alone. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's the first um, observation. 
the second observation is when you look at loneliness research, then, you know, one fairly, you know, expected result that comes out is that what matters crucially is not so much the number of social connections you've got, but the quality of the social connections you've got. Very hard to define, you know, what makes a social connection qualitative valuable. Do you and, think a chatbot is capable of registering us? Yeah, quality? and so that's right. And so then, then that brings me finally, you know, to the question, how about the chatbot? My hunch would be, you know, that rather, I know a little bit of evidence that chatbots can be useful, actually. Chatbots are employed, you know, in, I think in, in Japan, um, there's, a, there's a really prominent one, which, whose name now eludes me. That is apparently used with, you know, clinically excellent results. But my hunch would be that this can only happen on the back of a broader, you know, true social integration of the person who feels lonely. So, you know, if, if this is to be a constructive tool, and I think it can be, then it can't be the only thing you're doing, right? It can be something that supplements, mm -hmm. you know, the learning or re relearning or um, vision of the ability to form genuine social connections. I think that that points to a larger point that we've seen a lot in basically any question around AI, which is if you're trying to fully automate and replace humanity with AI, I think that's a very dangerous, slippery slope direction to go in. And there's a lot of you know red flags and things to be more uh, cautious about. On the other hand, if you're thinking of using AI to augment, supplement, assist human endeavors, that tends to be a much more safe, productive, I think that's kind of a, a more happy zone. So I can imagine, just to be concrete with our, our audience, I can imagine a setting where someone maybe has a pretty severe social anxiety and some kind of uh, therapist might work with a chatbot that lets a person kind of practice having social interactions so that by going through the mechanics of it, it becomes more routine and less anxiety causing. And then they can kind of go out into the real world and practice as well. So I could definitely see, as you're saying, chatbots playing a role in building up to social connections with humans. But that's, again, that sort of AI to assist. It's very different than saying like, oh, I don't need human friendships now because I have this computer I can talk to. But every question we, Gaurav and I have grappled with and come across and talked, it really kind of boils down to that. If you're just trying to replace human endeavors, I do not recommend that. And I think it's just so many ways it can go wrong. If it's assisting what we're doing, yeah. there's so much potential. It could still go wrong, but there's so much more safeguard built in and there's so much room for growth and potential there. I'm glad that's the case you think with loneliness as well, because it's, it's one more data point that suggests this is our, our general attitude towards AI. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, it then, of course, you know, as a, as a philosopher, then, you know, the question that arises immediately is, okay, and so what is it about the human connection that the, the chatbot cannot do, right? What is it about, about humans that, that is really different, right? And, you know, sort of you, you, might, you might say, well, the obvious answer is that, you know, humans have got genuine agency, you know, humans have genuine emotions. But then, you know, these emotions must be generated somehow. They, you know, are generated in some, some kind of brain-body-environment combo through something that is presumably describable as some kind of information processing. But once you, you are there, the question arises, but isn't it in principle then possible to, you know, replicate this artificially? right this information processing so is it is it what humans now can do that ai can't is is there a principle divide or is it just a matter of time i mean this is this is a really you know important question right and that that ties back to our earlier conversation that we're not trying to answer all these hard questions for students 
really posing them and, and inspiring students to think about them, I think, is really our goal. Because again, these are students who are going to graduate, even if they're a first-year student now. In four years, I don't think we're really going to be, my personal take, I might be wrong, we're not going to be really saying, I think computers have fully-fledged emotions now, and there's no real distinction between them and biological life. I don't think on the five-year time frame when these students are graduating and getting jobs, that'll be relevant. I do think that anyone who graduates into a field touched by AI, which is almost everything, I think it's really important to ask these questions, to think about them. So I think the frustration that you mentioned a student expressing in the student evaluations, I think is really apt, right? We really are not trying to answer the questions. We really want students to be aware of them and to ask them because that will carry them so far. So we don't need to know the answers. We don't need to know what's different about a social interaction with a chatbot versus a human. But just recognizing that that's a really important question and that that one question masks so many other deep, important questions, some of which go back to Descartes and other philosophers you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. I think that's the key is we can really see this whole intellectual tapestry come together when we really start asking these probing questions rather than like, what's the latest package in Python I should install so that I can do such and such, you know, with a large language model. So it, it really does come together. I think this is important for higher ed to remember is we're not trade school, we're not just preparing people for work in the short time. We do want our students to graduate with high employability prospects. We do want them to get jobs straight out of graduation. We don't want them to hit dead ends. And we don't want society to move in short-sighted directions, right? We want to prepare not just employability, but to flourishing of individual, you know, human souls and democracy and all these larger things. Like, I think personally, that is part of our higher ed mission. Even at a business school, I think that's part of our mission. Particularly at a business school, it's, it's part of our mission because, you know, many of the students that we are educating are going to have um, important roles of, of huge societal influence, um, importance. And it's therefore, you know, crucial that these people be able to think for themselves and that they see the big dimension of things. And, and so therefore, you know, I think, I think what, you know, at Bentley, we, we have always been trying to do this, you know, bringing together business and the arts and sciences which is, you know, a difficult thing to do and, 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 and doesn't always work smoothly. But in these new fields, I think it's, we now have a unique opportunity to really make this happen in a way that's meaningful, in which it was hard to see, you know, even 10 years ago. Absolutely. Great, great accent. Thank you. With, with that, we're going to wrap it up. I, there's so much more to talk about this and Axel would love to get you back again. Uh, and talk about robots and mind and body and how AI is getting closer to getting a humanized robot. But thank you again for joining us. Uh, this was a great discussion. Our guest today was Axel Seaman, professor and chair of the philosophy department at Bentley University. Join us as we navigate the evolving landscape of AI, offering our audience an inside look at innovative ways higher education institutions can harness this technology. Whether you're an educator, student, researcher, academic administrator, or simply an AI enthusiast, AI in Academia, Navigating the Future, promises to enlighten, challenge, and inspire. Tune in to be a part of the conversation that's shaping the future of education. 